All right, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7. So we are in the truly the home stretch. We're going to be in verses 15 through 23. Pull this up here. All right. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. God, help us with this difficult passage. Help us, God, to think clearly and to see what you have for us. And Lord, let us see the beauty of it and why it's good news for those who believe and belong to you. Holy Spirit, we need you to do the work that, that we cannot do. However, I preach this passage, I cannot pierce hardened hearts. I cannot give sight to closed eyes. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. And so we pray that you would do the work that needs to be done this morning. We trust you for that. And that it would glorify the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this is Yet another difficult passage in the Sermon on the Mount. This is another one that, that causes so much confusion and it actually can be really terrifying. And in my life, it has been terrifying. And I think what's most terrifying about this passage is that unlike some other places where it seems like you know Jesus is, is calling people to believe in something and they either believe him or they reject him. This is a passage that shows us that there will be those who are surprised. That's what's always been most terrifying to me. The scariest part to me is the idea that there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, I, I don't know you. That there will be people who will have done incredible works. And Jesus will, will say, I don't know you. I mean, it would be 
It would be one thing if in this story he says, you know, there will be those who will say this and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they said, ah, you caught me, you're right. It was all just a big, it was just, I was just faking it the whole time. I knew I was, I was kind of hoping that maybe I'd skip by, but I, but I knew, I knew that it wasn't genuine. But he doesn't say that. He gives the feeling that they are surprised, that they are pleading their case. This passage is really about deception. It's about those who deceive and those who are deceived. And the question then is, how do we know? How do we keep from being deceived? How can we make sure that we aren't those who are deceiving? How do we know if our faith is genuine? And I just want to say this at the outset. One of the, the biggest obstacles to knowing and letting Jesus reveal these kinds of things is our own is our own pride, is our own unwillingness to ask him, to say, Lord, show me, search me. We often think that we are safest if we protect ourselves from Scripture or protect ourselves from the Holy Spirit and the conviction that he might bring. But that is not safe. Actually surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit and trusting him and listening to him, that is the way of life. So I just want to encourage you in that as we go through this to not be your own justifier or your own accuser, but rather listen to God. So in this passage, the first, the first point that I want to make is, is a pretty simple one, and it's simply this, that wolves are real. Wolves are real. Over the years, in, in different contexts, one thing is for sure in, in my life in ministry is that there are wolves in the church. They're not the boogeyman. They're not a thing that, that like, oh, well, maybe back in that time in, in the early church, there were those kinds of people who, who were wolves who were trying to cause destruction and division, but we're past that now. Or maybe those wolves are, are somewhere else, but they're not, they're not here. They're not in our church family. They're not in the people that I know. And over and over and over again, I have learned the hard lesson that there are wolves in the church and they do not announce themselves. And the thing is, in my experience, sheep, all of us, I'm a sheep, you're a sheep, we're all sheep, sheep. You know you're thinking that, I don't know. Sheep always think that we'll recognize them. Like, that's the thing, is the one thing is for sure, there's always wolves, and the sheep always think, yeah, but I would know who they are. And that overconfidence only leads to more destruction. One of the favorite games that they play in, in youth ministry is werewolf. 
I could, I could, if we had more time, I would have them come up and just play the game for you. And it's such a great illustration of how there's somebody in this big circle. I've played it one time for like five minutes, so I'm going to totally butcher this, but who cares. Um, but I know this. I know that they play and it's a big circle and somebody is the werewolf. And the whole goal is to figure out who the werewolf is. Everyone gets a role and nobody else knows who everybody is. And so everybody has to pretend and there's all this scheming and conniving and trying to throw people off the scent and trying to get people to guess. And, and it's fun because, and it takes so long and it's fun because it's so difficult. It's so difficult. It would be so much easier if when they handed out the cards of your role, if the person said, ah, I'm the werewolf, awesome, game over. But the reason why it's challenging is because the werewolf doesn't want to be found. And so it is with wolves. Jesus makes the point here that they are hard to identify. He says, beware. They, they are there, but they are hard to identify. Look what, he, look what he says. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They dress like sheep. And not in the cartoonish way that we think about, like in a, you know, a Bugs Bunny cartoon where the wolf is sitting there and he just has like a sheepskin draped over his head like while he's drooling through his fangs. That's what we think, like, oh, okay, maybe that. But no, Jesus is saying they look like sheep. And clothing here, I think, would be like the outward works that they do. Remember how Jesus spent so much time of do not pray like the hypocrites? Do not give like the hypocrites? Do not fast like the hypocrites. Like He's pointing this out. He's saying that they'll look on the outside like they're doing good works. They'll look on the outside like they are sheep. But they're not. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. And their mission is to destroy. Like Make no mistake, they are real. They are hard to identify. And they seek to destroy. They divide. They claim to speak for God, but they do not. Ravenous wolves, the aim, their aim is not to just coexist with the sheep. They're not wolves who just really want to be a sheep. It's not like a, a sweet fairy tale of like the ugly duckling who just like grows into being a swan, just wants to be a duck and hang out and swim with the other ducks, but they're not a duck. That's not what wolves do. They seek to destroy. One of the things that has grieved me over years of ministry is to hear story after story about how people have been abused by church leaders. So much so that at this point in my life, when someone either says to me, or acts in a way that demonstrates that they don't trust me because I'm a pastor, I understand. I get it. There's, there are horrifying stories of people being abused in all kinds of way, all kinds of ways by those who claim to know Jesus. And Whenever we hear about those stories, the thing that my mind goes to is how often those wolves not only exist, but they are protected by the sheep. Think about that. 
Like it's one thing if we just didn't recognize, but as soon as a wolf started acting like a wolf, like as soon as like if we think like, hey, Terry over here, I don't think we have a Terry in here, so I'm hoping, I'm really hoping. Hey, Terry over here seems like, yeah, he's looking at him, like he's teaching Sunday school, he's doing all these things, it's great. Like, like yeah, but he just took a big bit, bite out of Jim. Well, you know, he was hungry, right? Like he's destroying him. Like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. We start protecting and always, when there are those situations, there you find sheep who are protecting the wolf. And they're often protected because they have other gifts that we really like. And we say, well, nobody's perfect. Sure, he's abusive verbally to people, but like, that's just his fire and passion. And we love that when he's speaking truth. Or they're protected because... We can't let the church be damaged. Like, well, if we, if we don't protect them, then, then what would happen to our church? What would happen to the ministry? Or they're protected just out of sheer cowardice that is masqueraded and marched out as grace and forgiveness. And the cost is high because wolves seek to devour and to destroy And one other thing about the reality of the wolves is that they are among you. And a warning to the Ephesian elders when Paul is saying goodbye to them, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I'm going to read that again. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Like you would think that if a church was going to be safe from wolves, it would be the church that Paul planted and spent three years, day and night, admonishing them with tears and teaching them and showing them and demonstrating the grace of God. You would think that that church would be safe at least for a little while, and yet he says, right after I'm gone, It's a harsh reality. It's very easy to look outside of ourselves to other churches, to other denominations, to other parts of the country and say, well, that's where all the wolves are. But here's the thing. Wolves, wolves don't want to just hang out with other wolves because then they would have no food. So there aren't churches that are just full of wolves. That would defeat the whole purpose. They scatter Wolves benefit from morality, from raising that bar and, and, and measuring by morality because they can make themselves look moral. They benefit from the status of having access to the sheep, so they pursue titles and positions. They seek to destroy, and they may not even realize that they're doing it, but they spread division and discontent and confusion they turn sheep against one another. They claim to be holy, 
but they are easily offended. They hide their gossip under the guise of concern. They don't confront honestly because they seek control. They defend their self-righteousness with claims of speaking truth. They are accusers, accusers of motivations, of the heart as a distraction from their own heart. Side note on that, because I want to make sure that this is clear. When I say that they are accusers, that is not the same thing as speaking up when you see something wrong. Okay? And the accusation, a wolf accuses as the judge, jury, and executioner. Well, they did this, and I know why they did this, and this is what they were thinking, and this is why you shouldn't trust them. That's how a wolf accuses. A sheep who draws attention says things like, I'm concerned about this. I'm uncomfortable with the way that you spoke to that person. I'm worried about this situation. I have concern around this. I don't know what all is happening, but I'm, I'm concerned. Or this, has been my, this was my experience in bringing that to the elders. Wolves accuse passively, often, saying something is not a big enough deal to confront, but it is a big enough deal to spread around to others and to plant seeds of doubt and distrust. So again, that is not the same thing as going to an elder with concerns about how someone is functioning in the church and desiring truth and reconciliation and resolution. And if you're ever confused about that, if you're ever unsure, please talk to one of the elders. Ask us. Share with us your concern. If you're scared to do that, if that makes you nervous, then go to somebody you trust with the idea with the plan of you want to bring this attention to the elders so that we can address those things. Because the reality is that we are just easily led astray. We often miss all the signs of wolves because we are often won over by all the exterior things because they look like they have it together. They seem so mature. They quote so much Bible. And what they say just makes so much sense. But listen to that description again. They look like they have it together. They seem so mature. They quote so much Bible. And what they say makes so much sense. Every single one of those things describes Satan as well. So how do you know? How can you tell those who deceive? Jesus says something very basic. He says you tell them by their fruit. He makes a very clear point. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad tr- fruit. And part of the difficulty of that is like, I, I read that passage and I'm like, awesome. Well, what's the fruit? He's going to tell us. But part of the difficulty is that fruit can look good from a distance. So one of the, one of the things that's interesting about this, when he, he talks about, I don't know how many of you um, would recognize like thorn bushes 
and thistles and figs. Anybody grow those in your, I mean, maybe thorn bushes, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know anything about plants, but here's what I do know. I read from somebody who is much smarter than me about plants, and this is, this is part of what is pointed out, that there are thorn bushes that produce berries that look like grapes. From a distance, they would kind of look like a grape. And then upon closer inspection, you realize, oh, that's not a grape. That's, that's a berry from a thorn bush. And there are thistles that produce a flower that make it look like a fig. And so from a distance, it looks like it. So the Jesus' hearers would have known that. They would have known that he's not talking about just some crazy big opposites. He's saying like, well, you know the difference. Yeah, these can look similar. They kind of look like they're doing the same thing, but they're not. And so we would say the same thing, like a person can look good on Sunday morning, but what do they look like on Saturday or Monday? Look, an act, a good work can look good from a distance, like the prayers that Jesus talks about, but maybe they are meant for a show. So Jesus gives us more. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here we get two things that can be false fruit and then what the fruit is that we really look for. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. So not everybody who says the right things is actually bearing fruit. Not everyone who preaches the right doctrine. Not everyone who makes the right stand on cultural issues. Not everyone who declares the proper beliefs and theology. Not everyone who sounds good when they are praying. That isn't the measurement. We say this all the time, but when it is said about someone, well, they may not be very kind, but, but they speak truth, and that's the most important thing. I would remind you that Satan always hides his lies in a lot of truth. And just because a person says the right things does not mean they belong to Jesus. And by the way, if you're sitting there thinking, well, Jay, doesn't this mean you too? Yes. A million times, yes. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Also, not everyone who does big acts. I mean, think about that. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Not everyone who does those works and those acts are actually bearing fruit. Ones that are done to, to make a big show. People who are only focused on, I want to do something big for God. I want to be noticed. I want to be seen. So not everyone who leads a big church or writes a bunch of books or is recognized and lauded as holy. I mean, it's like I, we can't get away from it. 
I've heard so much over the years, some version of like, my, what big churches you have. Oh, the better to serve the kingdom with, my dear. Like, and we don't see it. We're like, oh, right. Yeah, but that one, that's a wolf over here. But no, I'm, I'm here to serve. Like, okay. That's the problem, by the way, with celebrity Christianity. It was never meant to be a thing. Jesus is the only one who is meant to be famous. Paul addresses this twice. Once, I, I love it, I'm just going to point out this one because it's so funny to me. He talks about going to the Jerusalem council and meeting with like James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. And he says, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's his name dropping. The most famous Christians in the entire world at that point. We don't know anyone in the Christian world that is as famous as James and Peter and John were. No one. And Paul's name dropping by being like, I mean, I met with people who seem to be of influence, but what they were doesn't matter to me because God shows no partiality. And then he says to the church in Corinth, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's how Paul feels about celebrity Christianity. And it's not just personalities, by the way. It's churches. There's always just, there's, there's this desire in us of being seen or being attached to someone who's seen or known. I mean, that's why we share stories about celebrities. Like, if you've ever shared a story about how you were in TJ Maxx and, like, Aaron Rodgers walked in and you, like, had this brush with him as he went by and, like, I looked at the same shirt as him. You're not alone. I do the same thing. I actually took a picture one time because I was walking behind Aaron Rodgers down in in Green Bay. Super creepy, right? (laughs) I'm walking on the same sidewalk as Aaron Rodgers. We're drawn to it. And it happens at the local level. Anyone who puts their works on display so that people will glorify them. So it's not... What you say that proves that is the fruit that Jesus is talking about. It's not the miraculous works that you do that's the fruit that Jesus is talking about. Well, then what is it? He says it. Where is it here? There it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That's the fruit the one who does the will of my Father. What is the will of the Father? If you have your Bible with you, look look at it. Turn turn back just a couple of pages, whatever, to chapter 5. And if you can, I I don't have them up on the screen or anything, so if you don't have it in front of you, just remember over the last many weeks... What is the will of your father? Do not, do not be angry. Reconcile with your brother. Do not lust, but treasure your brothers and sisters. 
Honor God in your marriages. Your words matter. Simply say yes or no. Your word matters. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Seek God's rewards and not man's. In your giving, in your prayer, in your fasting. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry. Trust your Father in heaven. Do not judge others. Approach God as your good Father. And all summed up with the golden rule, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. That's what he's referencing. This is the will of his Father. The wolves will downplay what Jesus taught about the kingdom, about his kingdom. They'll quote scripture to make the case that we should disobey Jesus, but they don't say it directly like that. They'll act like it is the strong who inherit the earth, not the meek. They'll claim that we need to demand our rights rather than turning the other cheek. They will claim we need to attack our enemies rather than loving them. They will pick apart what Jesus has said and they will cause confusion to justify their own disobedience. And they will encourage others to do the same. But they are wolves. Or they are deceived sheep. Which they are, you don't know, I don't know. Jesus says he will sort all that out. But they do not, they are not, they don't belong to Jesus or they are not in service of the king. And we know it because they do not do the will of the Father. They do not love their enemies. They fight fire with fire. They control because they are gripped by worry because they do not know God as their Father. Those who know God as their Father are those who belong to Jesus. And those who belong to Jesus are known by him and will bear fruit. Fruit that comes from knowing him. It's not fruit that can be manufactured. It's not fruit that you can just take some teachings and like put it into practice and be good. It is the fruit that comes from within, from a changed heart. John the Baptist prophesied about this. He said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we, oh wait, sorry, go back to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you hear what he's saying here? They come forward and he said, who warned you? He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't give me all your religious works. Don't come in here acting like you are so much better than everybody else. Bear fruit keeping in repentance, in humility, in seeking God as your Savior. And he said, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What is that saying? That's their status. But you don't know how many generations I have been in this church. You don't know how far back my family tree goes. You don't know what we have done for this. That is nothing. John says, like, you, are you serious? You think God needs you and all your descendants? He will make children for himself out of these stones. That is who our God is. 
So don't bring your legacy. Don't bring your works. Bring your repentance and be changed and find life. The fruit keeping with repentance is the fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus and receiving his extravagant mercy. The fruit of loving your enemies because you know and have experienced Christ's love for you while you were a child of wrath. The fruit of giving extravagantly in faith because you have experienced Christ, Christ's extravagant mercy towards you and extravagant generosity towards you. The fruit of forgiving others because you have experienced Christ's forgiveness of you. The fruit of loving your neighbor as yourself because you have experienced Christ's love for you. The fruit of turning the other cheek because you have experienced Christ's mercy and his refusal to exact justice from you, but to give you mercy and grace. The fruit of a life that lives every day in the surpassing joy of being forgiven and set free and redeemed and renewed in the spirit to live in the identity that was purchased for you on the cross. That is the fruit that is the will of the Father. That is fruit keeping with repentance can't control it any more than an orange tree can control that an orange comes out from it. It just grows that way because it's an orange tree. And when you are bought by Christ, then you can't control the good works that come out of you because the Spirit of God is in you and he produces those things. And yes, we are also battling in the flesh and we have this dual already not yet and there is a battle that keeps going on but it's a battle that is real as we see fruit in our lives along with feeling conviction over the sin in the areas where we still don't live in that identity but this is how you'll know how they will know that you belong to him Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That connection between knowing him and bearing fruit and doing the will of the Father, it's, that's the connection. That's why he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness, it's the fact that they didn't know him. They weren't known by him. They hadn't been transformed by him. That meant all their works, whether they were good or not, whether the world saw them as good or not, they were not done in faith, and therefore they were not pleasing to God. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So do you know him? Do you abide in him? Or you do, do you just know about him? And you do enough religious things hoping that nobody will notice. And maybe you knew him at first. Maybe there was a time where you say, I, I did. I remember experiencing him and abiding in him and knowing him and feeling his presence. But over time, your hunger for that has faded. You've slipped into patterns of just kind of every routines. And it's been replaced by just doing right things and taking the right stands or riding the coattails of your earlier faith. If that's the case, then turn and receive his grace and know that he does not lose you. 
He will hold on to you. Put your trust in him. I thought about, like, how do you know? Like, what are his questions? Like, here, here are just a few questions I would ask. Are your testimonies about things that happened years ago? Or do you have a testimony of the very real presence and grace of Christ in your life today? Now, listen, I still share stories that are from years ago, like how big they were. But if, but if you said, like, how has Christ impacted your life today? We should have an answer. Maybe it seems small. Maybe it seems silly to you. But remember, small things become big things in the kingdom. Are your conversations about faith, are they generic or are they specific? Are they just generic kind of platitudes of like, well, God is good, God is in control? Or do you have specific things of, this is what I've been struggling with. This is where I'm struggling to believe that God is good or that God is in control. And this is where I'm battling this and the Spirit of God is meeting me here. Or I'm struggling with this and I don't know how to live this out in my life. Those are specific conversations. Are your conversations mostly about what is going on in your heart or what is going on out there? Because listen, if most of your conversations that are related to Christianity are about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, that's a bad sign. Think about this. In all the epistles, in all the New Testament, how much of it is devoted to how bad the world is? I challenge you, read through the entire New Testament and count how many times it talks about how bad the world is, how bad the Roman government is, and it was bad. How bad the non-believing neighbors are. Lamenting about how the world is falling apart. What is it actually focused on? The hearts of those who belong to Jesus. It's an exhortation for unity, for loving one another, with bearing with one another, and worshiping together. Are you more concerned about issues or people? This came up last week, and I've got a lot of feedback on that, that idea of issues or people. Well, it comes up again. I'm not going to go into it, but in Paul's passage about whether or not to eat meat in 1 Corinthians 8, you should read it. It's maybe the biggest debate going on at the time. Was it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols that was sacrificed to idols and then sold? Was that okay or was it not? And they ask Paul, and Paul says, in the biggest moral debate that was going on in that moment in that church that was causing division, Paul goes, depends. Well, that would not fly here today. Not at all. He says, it depends. Love God. If your heart is troubled by it being sacrificed to idols, don't eat it, because you're called to love God. And love your neighbor as yourself. If it causes your brother to stumble, don't eat it. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you that if that was an issue in our culture today, we would have battles between the camps of, we're free to eat meat, and you shouldn't eat meat. Because we do that with everything. Do it with alcohol, and voting, and school choices, and social media, and youth sports, and car purchases, and movies, and on, and on, and on. Because we're so enamored by issues instead of people. By the way, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, have you ever noticed Jesus doesn't say a word about the man who was beaten? What was he doing? 
Why was he out there? Was he up to no good? Was he one of the thieves? Was he, was he a thief who was assaulted by other thieves? Was he a good businessman or was he dishonest? Was he a family man? We don't know. Because he doesn't say. Because it isn't the point. The point isn't how worthy is that man of being loved. The point is what kind of neighbor are you? If we want to see this area transformed, we keep calling this. If we want to see revival break out, it's not actually a big secret of how it happens. It happens when every single one of us buy into this idea that my calling is to abide in Jesus every second of every day. And when I fall, which I will, and when I forget that, which I will, and when I forget who I am and who he says that I am, which I will, that we, pick, we, we are picked up by him and by one another, and we carry on. We press on, forgetting what lies behind, but pressing on to what is ahead. And we keep doing all those things in faith, little by little by little. And those little things start heaping up to big things. And before you know it, God is doing miraculous things. Believing that small acts of faithfulness matter. Learning what he means when he says turn the other cheek and to forgive and to do good to those who do evil to you. And that is where we find life and hope and peace and joy. That is the fruit. He gives what he requires. He requires faith. He gives it. He requires righteousness. He gives it. So if you're sitting there thinking like, well, that's, what I, that's my problem, and I'm, I'm worried. This is why this passage worries me, because I feel like I'm always struggling. Listen to me. Listen to me, please. If you've checked out, check back in right now. If you are struggling with this, that is a good sign. Wolves don't struggle with their sin. Wolves justify their sin. So if you are in a place where you are struggling and you say, I don't know because I, I keep doing this thing. I don't want to do this thing, but I've done it. And I, but I, I see this over here. I see evidence of God's grace over here. But then like, I'm struggling with this today and I keep promising myself I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I did it again. Brother, sister, that is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. Read Romans 7 and Romans 8 and see how that impacts you in that journey. Abide in him. And by the way, when you abide in him and when that happens, when you, when you bear that fruit, when you are with him, then it transforms everything else. When you are abiding in him, then what you say matters. So listen, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, belongs to him, but everyone who belongs to him declares him as Lord. You see how that flips? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, belongs to him, but everyone who belongs to him declares him as Lord, confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord, to tell others about him, to submit their lives to him. Everyone who belongs to him does that. When you're abiding in him, what you do matters. Not everyone who does good works belongs to him, but all who belong to him do good works because faith apart from works is dead. We know that we're transformed. We do the will of our Father in heaven. The question is, does he know you? Do you know him? And do you abide in him? That's the fruit that matters. 
So, this is the end. There are these two big reasons why I preach this message the way that I have. One is that you'd be confronted with the authenticity of your faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit would pierce your heart and that if you're sitting there and saying this passage does nothing, I don't feel anything, then that is cause for concern. Turn to him. Trust him. Don't convince yourself, I'm probably fine. It's probably not talking about me. And sometimes maybe it's just out of ignorance. Maybe you've just been coming to church and you don't know. Like, you don't know that you're supposed to know him. Like, he wants a relationship with you and to change your life and give you a new identity and empower you to walk in the way that he has given you. That's what he wants. You can't have that. Turn to him. And the other reason is to ask yourself, who do you trust? Who do you give influence to in your life? Who do you allow to influence you? Think about it. Who would you follow? The person who speaks eloquently and performs all these miraculous signs and wonders or the person who faithfully follows Jesus in every circumstance? The one that you see loving a person who cannot love back and that no one else notices. Are you drawn to the person who always has a point of debate to demonstrate how they actually know more than others? Or are you drawn to the person who in humility is convicted by the Spirit speaking through even the newest of Christians or a seeker and confesses that? Are you drawn to the person who's always calling others to be accountable or the person who receives accountability? The person who shares the gospel with someone who is in authority and knows everything or the person who shares it as one beggar telling another where to find bread. Don't be wowed by giftings. Be drawn to Christ-like character. Don't be enamored with authority, but follow the meek. Don't listen to just content, but listen to the heart. Seek people like Peter and John when they saw the boldness of them and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Seek those people. Learn from them. Walk with them. Seek people who have been with Jesus and let our neighbors say that about us. That they are normal people Nothing special outwardly. But they've been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want this. We want to be known by you and loved by you. We want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room right now who has looked at that passage and has been terrified. Lord, I pray that they would not, when they are thinking right now, Lord, I pray right now that you give in their minds and their hearts that when they think about this passage, that they do not think about their past week or their past month, what they have done or have not done, but that they would think about what you have done. That they would cling to you on the cross. And that Holy Spirit, they would feel your conviction but paired with your mercy and your comfort. And Lord, let us be known by you. 
that we may bear much fruit. Fruit in keeping with repentance, which is the will of our Father. Amen.